Hey everyone, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. This is a show where we're going to take a large thing and we're going to break it into smaller things, like they do with rocks in space. Seriously, because that's what we're covering today, asteroids. June 30th is World Asteroid Day, so we're going to raise awareness for the plight of the planet. You can advance all you want in the Matrix or in the internet, but if an asteroid shows up, that was me slicing my neck. Not good. But that's neither here nor there. We don't actually have a podcast about asteroid impacts, so we probably should make one. Tweet me at Trace Dominguez or us at Seeker if you think so. But today what we're going to talk about is asteroid mining, because getting to the asteroids is actually the big difficult part. Today we're going to talk about what an asteroid actually is, how dangerous they are, if we can mine them, and how useful they could be if we do, and much, much more. It's going to be so awesome. This is a fun rebroadcast of an episode, so let's kick into it. Seeker Plus is sponsored by Rivers of Oil from Minnesota Public Radio. Rivers of Oil takes a look at the hidden world of oil pipelines that flow beneath our feet. It's really incredible, guys. It's really cool. The show explores why the oil pipelines are at the forefront of an epic tug of war between our dependence on oil and the risk that oil poses, the future of our world. And I know that we're talking about fusion and fission in this Star Trek-based episode, but right now we've still got oil. So, in true Seeker Plus fashion, we should all break it down so we understand it a bit better. And Rivers of Oil does that, and it helps us understand and the role that we play in this story, too. So check it out wherever you get Asteroids were first discovered in 1801 when Giuseppe Piazzi was looking at the space between Mars and Jupiter, and he found a bright spot. It looked kind of like a star, but it was too close, and he eventually realized it was a tiny celestial body. It got the name Ceres. They called it an asteroid, which is Greek for star-like. Asteroids are rocky, irregular-shaped objects orbiting in outer space. They can be gigantic, hundreds of miles across, and some are even big enough to give off their own significant gravitational pull. They could also be very tiny, of course, you know, the size of pebbles and small rocks. But asteroids are classified as inactive. They are made of rock, and they orbit the sun. They must also be smaller than a planet. Sometimes they're called minor planets or planetoids. What an asteroid is not is also a meteoroid. You've probably heard of that. And these are smaller asteroids, essentially. They could go from a grain of dust all the way up to about a meter, but they don't have to be made of rock. They could be a chunk of an asteroid that broke off or a chunk of a comet. They are also orbiting the sun. They are also not meteors. A meteor is a flash of light emitted when a meteoroid enters our atmosphere and then burns up. It's just the light. It doesn't actually have a physical thing. Then there's a meteorite, which is whatever part of a meteoroid that doesn't burn up and might reach the ground here on our planet. There's also a dwarf planet that is not an asteroid. Ceres used to be considered an asteroid. Now it fits the definition of a dwarf planet. Ceres is 600 miles across, and though it does exist in the asteroid belt, it is not an asteroid. Pallas and Vesta are known as the largest asteroids in the asteroid belt, which is pretty much where asteroids are found. Asteroids mostly live in the asteroid belt, which really weirdly does not have a name. It's just the asteroid belt or the main belt, and that's between Mars and Jupiter, like I said earlier. It's the largest collection of asteroids in our solar system. There's estimated to be 1.1 to 1.9 million asteroids larger than one kilometer millions or billions of others that are smaller than that. Overall, there might be trillions of asteroids floating around out there. The inner solar system has the asteroid belt, and the outside of the solar system has the Kuiper belt. 
The Kuiper Belt is made of leftover fragments that have been pulled apart by Neptune's gravity, just like the asteroid belt had been pulled apart by Jupiter's gravity. And this explains why Neptune is our last planet. Sorry, Pluto. All of these definitions, by the way, are pretty fuzzy. So take that with a grain of asteroid. Asteroids are also found just kind of wandering around. Trojan asteroids orbit the sun alongside planets. They're always in step with the planet, either in front or behind them. The two will never collide. There are near-Earth asteroids, those which orbit close to the Earth. As of 2013, NASA reported over 10,000 near-Earth asteroids, with 1,409 being potentially dangerous and 861 being over a kilometer in diameter. Asteroids got out there with the same way we did. Asteroids formed from space dust and gas left over from the Big Bang. Four and a half billion years ago, gas and dust coalesced into the new star that we would call the sun. The dust gathered, making larger and larger rocks and clumps that eventually became planets like our own, but some never achieved the level to make a planet. Some were just tiny chunks and little pieces. The gravitational pull of planets maybe pulled those chunks into themselves or just left them orbiting out there. It was once thought that asteroids were shrapnel from a planet that exploded a long time ago. But this is because asteroids today are mainly found between Mars and Jupiter, where many people think a planet was or should be. The Titus-Bode law says there should be a planet between Mars and Jupiter. The Titus-Bode law looks at the mass and the radius of the sun and how many planets there are and the mass of all those planets, and they can figure out exactly where they should be orbiting. There should be a planet in between Mars and Jupiter in terms of that mathematical equation, but Jupiter's gravity was so large and exerts so much effort on our solar system that as those asteroids started to coalesce, Jupiter's gravity pulled them apart. So no planet ever formed there even though there is something called the exploded planet hypothesis. It just can't be true. There's not enough mass in the whole asteroid belt to form a planet. Instead, it would be like smaller than our moon if it were able to form. You can watch a whole video about this over on DNews. Some parts of the asteroid belt are planetesimals or tiny little chunks that you know, are big in comparison to what you might expect, but tiny in comparison to planets. And this is why there's such a large asteroid belt there between Mars and Jupiter. Uh, asteroids in the belt, both the inner belt and the Kuiper belt, are made mostly of rock, but they do contain other stuff. They have different classifications that astronomers have put upon them. There's the C-type asteroids, which are carbonaceous. 75% of all asteroids are carbonaceous. They're mostly clay and silicate rocks, and those are the furthest from the sun, way out there. There are also S-type asteroids, silicous asteroids. They're made primarily of stone and metals like nickel and iron, and they live in the inner part of the asteroid belt. Then there's the M-type or metallic asteroids. Those are mostly made of nickel and iron, but they also have more expensive metals like platinum and gold, and those live in the middle part of the asteroid belt. Some asteroids are even thought to have water or ice at their core. The thing is, these asteroids, they're big. And when they leave the asteroid belt or get thrown away by gravity or an impact, they could head for us. And a big one could destroy all of the life on this planet pretty easily. It's been done before, and it's been done again. It's just a matter of time. But how dangerous are they? And what would we do if one had us in their sights? When asteroids hit us, sometimes nothing happens. Because asteroids are hitting Earth all the time. 100 tons of meteoroids 
hit Earth's atmosphere every single day, in fact. These meteoroids are mostly rocks the size of a grain of sand or just space dust, but it's still 100 tons worth. A NASA study looked at all this material, and between 1994 and 2013, there were 556 different times that an asteroid entered Earth's atmosphere. And all of those were between 1 meter and 20 meters. They didn't even look for the small stuff. Most of those disintegrated before reaching the surface, but the big ones did cause some harm. In Chelyabinsk, Russia in 2013, you probably saw this on the news or on YouTube, an asteroid 20 meters in diameter impacted the Earth's atmosphere. And then when it burned its way through at 11 miles per second, it exploded with the energy of 500 kilotons of TNT. That injured 1,500 people. It damaged buildings. It you know, set off car alarms. How annoying. And a shockwave spread through Chelyabinsk knocking people off their feet, injuring some, shattering glass and collapsing rooftops. The glow from the fireball alone was 30 times brighter than the sun. People reported skin burns and retinal burns from the radiation as it burned through our atmosphere. And this kind of stuff happens fairly often, you know, in astronomical reckoning, about every 100 years. In 1908, the Tunguska event occurred flattening 800 miles of forests, also in Russia, with the energy of 1,000 Hiroshima bombs. Between 2000 and 2013, 26 different explosions the size of a nuclear bomb were caused by asteroids. Data collected from the nuclear missile detection system found all of these different explosions, and NASA compiled all this data, showing that this happened three to ten times more often than they had previously thought. That's a pretty big deal. Again, though, these are not impacts. They are explosions in our atmosphere that before we didn't even know were happening. Most exploded too high to have made a difference on the ground. When an asteroid hits the atmosphere, it's so thick, sometimes it doesn't make it that far. That's what a shooting star is. It's just an asteroid or a meteoroid hitting our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is super important, and not just for, you know, breathing. The biggest hit ever discovered was last year in Australia. An impact crater 250 miles across was identified, and scientists are still unsure exactly when it happened, but probably like 300 million years ago. Giant impact events like these happen often enough that astronomers are excited, but not often enough that you should be worried. For example, every 100 million years is a, an impact that would, say, kill all the dinosaurs on the planet. Every 500,000 years an impact would happen that would destroy all civilization. Every 300 years, a large one that can do serious damage to our planet like Tunguska. So we've got a while before we have to worry about it. You know, 65 million years ago, that dinosaur one happened. So we've got a few million left. Luckily, we are now watching for these. You know, not watching a lot, but we are watching. Near-Earth asteroids are being looked at constantly by space agencies, but also by amateur astronomers. One study showed that for every thousand asteroids in our solar system, there is one that has an orbit that crosses Earth's orbit. And this is when a possible collision can happen and stuff can get dangerous. In 2013, NASA released a map of over 1,400 potentially dangerous asteroids, ones that could strike Earth at some point. A dangerous asteroid is classified as one over 140 meters in diameter that will pass within 7.5 million kilometers of Earth's orbit. None of those mapped by NASA posed a threat within, like, the next 100 years. So, no worries then. The thing is, we don't really have a plan if one was going to hit. I mean, we have some plans, but we don't really have a 
good plan. Officially, we only started asteroid detection programs in like 1994. Congress told NASA to develop a plan to track large, dangerous asteroids in space. In 98, NASA created the Near Earth Orbit Program, the NEO program. You can go to their website, see all the things that they're tracking. They discovered 95% of the one-kilometer-sized asteroids that pose a potential threat to us. They have them all on their website. 2005, the U.S. Congress asked NASA to find and identify potentially dangerous asteroids that were 140 meters or larger by 2020. Note, by the way, none of these are a plan. They are just looking for things that might harm us. The guys with the plan are the B612 Foundation. They were founded in 2002. It's a nonprofit group of scientists, engineers, and astronauts. And their plan involves building the Sentinel Space Telescope. The whole job of the telescope would be to find asteroids. But the launch date because of missed deadlines and pulled funding by NASA, has been pushed back to 2019. So, so far, we still don't have the plan started, but at least we have somewhat of a plan. Internationally, the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space mandated the Space Missions Planning Advisory Group, which would coordinate international responses to a threatening near-Earth object, and the International Asteroid Warning Network, which sounds fancy, but doesn't really do anything. In July of 2015, just recently, the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System opened in Hawaii. It was funded by NASA. It was developed by the University of Hawaii. And based on this and all the data that we've collected about all these near-Earth objects, they can give a one-day warning when you spot a 30-kiloton asteroid. Kiloton based on the mass, the weight of it, you know. One week for a 5-megaton asteroid, or three weeks for a 100-megaton asteroid. By comparison, the asteroid that hit Russia was 13 kilotons. So the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System wouldn't have been able to spot it. That kind of sucks. We got lucky. No one knew it was coming. But even after that, all of that stuff, there's still no friggin' plan. There are different proposed ideas of what to do, but no one's really tested them yet. One of the ideas, and one of the more popular ones, is to just nudge the asteroid out of the way. Unlike the movie Armageddon, which, by the way, would not work. You can't blow it in half and have it fly around us at the last minute. You'd have to move it way before it gets here. And nudging the asteroid is one way to do that. They launch a robotic probe. They would meet the asteroid with the hopes of altering the course. And this is being put into practice by a U.S.-European team They're going to send a small spacecraft to crash into a non-threatening asteroid in 2020 with impact in 2022 to see if this would work. They could also send an object that would pull the asteroid out of our trajectory. This is called a gravity tractor. Essentially, they just park a spacecraft off to the side of an asteroid, and the gravity of the spacecraft alone would cause it to move really, really small amounts. But that really small amount, if they got to it soon enough, would mean that it would miss us. Project Laser Bees is done by the Planetary Society. They're working with a couple of universities in Scotland. This started with the idea that they would send up a swarm of spacecraft equipped with mirrors, which would concentrate the light from the sun onto the asteroid, and that would also, you know, deflect it. Essentially, it turns out it was better to just use lasers in the end, but either way, they would focus all of these lasers on one spot, vaporize the rock and metal of the asteroid, creating this tiny little superheated plasma jet, and that would move the asteroid off course. Bill Nye said that this would be like standing on a skateboard and playing catch with a bowling ball. It'd be very difficult to maintain your trajectory. And then, of course, there is the Bruce Willis system where we send a nuclear bomb to the asteroid and blow it up. First off, though, 
Article 4 of the Treaty of the Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies, which is an actual treaty. We just call it the Outer Space Treaty. It's easier. That says that no country can detonate a nuclear weapon in outer space. But, you know, if they change that, then we might have some options. You could blow up an asteroid, again, if you get to it soon enough. Blowing up the asteroid doesn't stop it from flying towards us. It just means a bunch of little asteroids are flying towards us. The founding director of the Asteroid Deflection Research Center at Iowa State has a plan that involves sending a spacecraft called the Hypervelocity Asteroid Intercept Vehicle toward a dangerous asteroid. The vehicle would then send an impactor that would hit the asteroid and make a crater, and a millisecond behind the impactor would be a nuclear bomb detonating inside of the crater, getting it closer to the center of gravity and resulting in smaller pieces not as harmful to Earth and hopefully moving the big chunk of them out of the way. The lead researcher says that that might be a heavy meteor shower of like 100 meteor events like the Chelyabinsk one, but that's better than, you know, full destruction, I guess. And then, of course, on top of that, there's a bunch of other crazy ideas. Blowing up a nuclear bomb near the asteroid and vaporizing part of it to push it out of the way. That's similar to the Laser B project. Wrapping an asteroid in mylar sheets and creating a solar sail that might move the asteroid out of the way. Launching a rocket to the asteroid, attaching a rocket motor to it, and then blowing it that way out of the way. Even painting it. Simply painting the asteroid white on half of it and letting the reflection of light from the sun push it out of the way. All of these are crazy ideas. We could also just go out there and capture the asteroid, you know, if we perfect that. Asteroid capture is a big deal right now in space technology because if we can capture one, then maybe we could live on it, maybe we could mine it, maybe we could use it for something. Asteroid capturing is not actually all that easy. In 2013, NASA introduced an asteroid capture mission called ARM, Asteroid Redirect Mission. The original plan was to capture and drag a completely intact space rock into the orbit of the moon, aka a distant retrograde orbit. Astronauts would then visit that asteroid that had been captured and orbited on the moon as early as 2021. The idea is a big balloon thing that was like a donut would completely surround the rock, and as it deflated, it would stop it spinning so you could control it. There's actually a really cool animation of that. We'll put that down in the description as well. As of 2015, the plan wasn't to go out and capture the whole space rock, but just a small piece of it, because it turns out asteroids can get kind of big. It's hard to capture something that might be half a kilometer. Picking up a multi-ton boulder off of a larger asteroid was much easier, and we could then bring it back and inspect it just like we were planning with the big one. And you would also still keep it in the orbit of the moon. NASA's arm came after cancellation of the Constellation mission back in 2010. Constellation was over budget. It was behind schedule, and President Obama canceled it. Thanks, Obama. In case you aren't familiar, Constellation was the NASA program that wanted to put people on Mars. But later in 2010, Obama issued a directive to NASA to get astronauts to a near-Earth asteroid by 2025 and then to Mars by the mid-2030s. A study came out a little after that from the Keck Institute of Space Sciences at Caltech in Pasadena. And the study looked at the feasibility of sending a robotic spacecraft to capture a small asteroid, like seven meters wide, then tow it back to lunar orbit. They concluded that it could be done for about $2.6 billion. Not bad. It's like a couple days of government spending. NASA took notice of the paper. They did their own study, and in April of 2013, unveiled the Asteroid Redirect Mission which we've been talking about. As I mentioned earlier, the plan evolved over time, 
But it's extremely difficult to gauge the size of asteroids accurately, which makes the original plan of grabbing a big asteroid much too risky. What happens if you get up to the asteroid and it turns out that the big donut balloon thing that you sent was too small for the asteroid? That would be problematic. Also, the target asteroid would have to be big enough to be worth capturing and not so big that it would be dangerous to Earth, and you know, it, it gets complicated. Aside from grabbing a boulder off the asteroid, the new plan would also allow for NASA to test systems to try and move asteroids out of the way. So they wanted one that was big enough to be dangerous to Earth and that would have a boulder that they could get. That would make it easier to do those other tests we talked about earlier. ARM is also cheaper. ARM is capped at $1.25 billion. It's cheaper than the Keck Institute projection, but it gives you the opportunity to test those asteroid deflection things, and the risks are reduced. You don't have to grab a whole asteroid. You're just grabbing these little boulders. If everything goes according to plan, this is how it will work. The capture probe launches in December of 2020, possibly toward asteroid 2008 EV5. It's about 400 meters wide. It is the leading candidate right now. It's big enough to be dangerous the right type, the right size. Then after two years of space flight, the robotic craft will rendezvous with the asteroid, and there it will assess the availability of any boulders on its surface. Eventually, it will nab like a four-meter-wide rock from the surface, and the probe will stay with the asteroid for another year or so, 215 to 400 days, and they will perform the deflection demonstration to see if their gravity tractor can work. Then it will head away toward a lunar orbit. The probe would get to the moon around 2025, and NASA would send two astronauts to inspect that asteroid boulder using the agency's Orion Capsule and Space Launch System, or SLS, both of which are in development now. They're super cool. And that manned mission would last for a little less than a month, three to four weeks. Scientists hope that if they are able to do all of this, they'll extract some insight from the asteroid on the current state of the solar system, how the solar system was formed, and how to do all this stuff, because they've never done it before. One current problem, of course, aside from all of this, is our spacesuits aren't the best at doing geology. Normal tools like hammers, they're a little precarious around spacesuits, which can be punctured, and you know they have those face shields, which could be broken. Spacesuits need to be improved. The tools need to be improved. The spacecraft needs to be improved. There's so many different things that we still need to do in order to get this job done. But it's not just NASA that's trying to do this. Two years before NASA's announcement, a group of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs announced that they hope to develop a robotic spacecraft capable of extracting valuable materials from asteroids. Planetary Resources is the company, and in July of 2015, they launched their first test spacecraft, the ARCID Reflect spacecraft. It's a small satellite. It was launched from the International Space Station, and it's on a 90-day mission to test the avionics and control systems to see if they could go grab an asteroid. The Planetary Resources co-founder and co-chairman said that our team is developing the technology that will enable humanity to create an off-planet economy that will fundamentally change the way we live on Earth. But is that really true? Once we capture an asteroid, what do we do with it? You know, capturing it's hard enough. What do we do when we get it? And even if we capture it, what's in there? How much really is in these space rocks? And how do we mine them in the first place? More on that after a quick break and a word from our sponsor. 
When I was a kid, I read dozens of Star Trek books, mostly Star Trek Voyager because I was that kid, but I also read Harry Potter. And after I read through them a couple of times, I picked up the audiobooks. And I have to say, I have listened to Harry Potter more than I have read it because those audiobooks are amazing. They're read by Jim Dale. He does all the voices and you can check them out for free with our new sponsor, Audible. You can try them with a 30-day free trial from Audible because you get a free book when you do that. Just go to audible.com slash seeker or text seeker to 500-500 to start your free trial. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash seeker or seeker to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. And if you're not into Harry Potter, if that's not your thing, there are so many other books to choose from. And please give me a recommendation. I'm always looking for new things to read or listen to. So just let me know what you pick, sign up with our code, and thank you so much for watching Seeker. So there are a bunch of different things that scientists look for when they spot an asteroid. And when they look at asteroids and analyze them, we're going to call asteroids NEAs or near-Earth asteroids. Scientists use ground-based infrared telescopes and spectrometers to see which minerals exist in the structure of an NEA. Different minerals will absorb light at different wavelengths. So if you bounce the right light and you know what you bounced off of it and pick up different light, then you know it absorbed some of it. Once they bounce the light off the asteroid, they can determine exactly what it is made of because some of that light won't come back. It'll have been absorbed or it will reflect differently. Not only do they bounce infrared telescopes and spectrometers, but they can also bounce just standard radar off of the asteroids. And that'll show them the surface features and determine the composition of those asteroids by what is reflected back. And asteroids, by the way, are never made of just one thing. They're moving and sometimes they're rubble piles where they're just piles of rock all kind of loosely gravitationally attached. Sometimes they're solid. Sometimes they're different than both of those things or somewhere in between. There's usually a scientific debate as to the different minerals present in pretty much any asteroid. Once the composition is more or less determined, asteroids are assigned a spectral classification. Now, these classifications are confusing, to put it mildly. These are separate from their letter names. So in the case of the asteroid that they might go capture, 2008 EV5, that is separate from its spectral classification. That's just its name. So it could be an S-type asteroid, which means they're found in the inner area of the asteroid belt, closer to Mars, mainly stony. Could be C-type, which means they're in the outer main belt. They're more carbonaceous. 80% of asteroids are C-type, but they could also be A, B, C, D, E, F, G, M, P, Q, R, S, T, and V-type. And that gets confusing, I bet you can guess. In June of 2015, asteroid UW158, that has nothing to do with its type, by the way, remember, it's shot by Earth. And based on the tools that we mentioned earlier, it had a lot of moolah trapped in it. It's approximately 452 meters by 1,011 meters. If estimations are correct, it could have 90 million tons of platinum in it. Only 192 tons of platinum have ever been found on Earth, so that would really change the platinum market, to say the least. It would be worth an estimated $5 trillion. U.S. GDP in 2013 was $16.8 trillion. So it's a lot. It's a lot of money, and that's just one asteroid, UW-158. It came pretty close to Earth when it passed, 2.4 million kilometers. It wasn't visible to the naked eye, but... UW-158 was added to NASA's Near-Earth Object Human Spaceflight Accessible Target Study, or NASA NEO-ENHATS. <laughs> I love their acronyms, and I love them for it. They possibly could target UW-158 for a future manned mission. 
While it's great to get rich or die trying for these precious minerals on asteroids, it is not the only reason to mine them. Asteroid mining isn't just for metals like platinum or palladium or gold, but it can also be for something even more precious once you get out into space, water. By mining an asteroid for water, we can break the water down into hydrogen and oxygen, which can be used as rocket fuel and as air to breathe. It would make it much more of a reality to be able to send a rocket there, collect stuff, and then use the fuel to make it back. You wouldn't have to take fuel both ways. Or you could launch from there out deeper into space using asteroids as like gas stations along the way. Sure, metal and asteroids could be mined and kept there on the asteroid, and then we can use a 3D printer to build parts and do all sorts of stuff. This is already being practiced with lunar regolith or lunar soil. At CES in January of this year, Planetary Resources, in collaboration with 3D Systems, developed the first ever direct metal print using asteroid metals, or stuff that we think would be found on asteroids. The prototype was 3D printed from an actual asteroid that was pulverized, powdered, and processed on 3D Systems' new printer. The meteorite, or, you know, former asteroid, was composed of iron, nickel, and cobalt, which are similar to refinery-grade steel, so it's pretty good stuff. But depending on what is inside the asteroid, we could also mine them for other things like fertilizer, because there could be ammonia, methane, nitrogen, carbon, which is all you need to do to create fertilizer. And that could be used to grow hydroponics or plants in space, you know? Fertilizer for space people to grow space food in space. It's important. Essentially, asteroid mining could not only change life here on Earth, but it could also change life for people living in space. It could be a big business for a moon colony or a Mars colony, especially Mars since it's right next to the asteroid belt, to go out, grab an asteroid, bring it back, and mine it for resources. That could change the entire economics of space. It's a huge deal. And there are companies tripping over themselves to figure this out. But the thing about this is just because you captured an asteroid and just because you can mine an asteroid doesn't mean that that's all you can do. What about putting a person on one, right? Which is an actual plan. So if we plan to go and grab these space rocks in the near future and then we plan to mine them, it might not be the best plan to just grab the little ones, right? We might have to grab some big ones. We might have to send people out there to do the mining. But before we do that, is any of this even legal? (laughs) That's actually questionable. The Outer Space Treaty, also known as the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States and the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and Celestial Bodies, Outer Space Treaty, says that you can't own a piece of space. You cannot own a celestial body, a country. They can't do it. It's not allowed under that treaty. But the Space Act of 2015 says that U.S. citizens can engage in exploration and exploitation of space resources. But the United States has no sovereignty over anything that they are mining. So you can't own the asteroid, but you can take the stuff, which makes me think of like StarCraft. You know, you can't own the planet Char, but you can send your drones and get gas and minerals and construct additional pylons and stuff. Whatever. So after the legality is settled, which probably won't happen until people start going out and grabbing them, what happens then? Do we colonize? Do we keep people on asteroids? A popular sci-fi topic is the idea of colonizing our solar system. 
You know, it's what's happening on the TV series The Expanse. It's a cold war between Mars and Ceres, and the belt and wealthy cities of Mars get their water from ice miners in the belt. But the miners are living in decayed, oxygen-starved habitats. Honestly, I've never seen this show, but it sounds really great. Thanks for writing about it, Donna, our associate producer for Test Tube Plus. What would it be like to live on Ceres, though? Ceres is big, but big for an asteroid. I mean, back when it used to be one. Now that it's a dwarf planet... It's kind of small. It's the diameter of Texas, has the surface area of India. And because it's that small, the gravity is only 3% or less than Earth's, which means it's got no atmosphere, it's got no weather, it's got nothing to protect you from interspace radiation. You would just see black, and it would have extreme shifts in temperature, negative 100 Celsius during the day, negative 225 Celsius at night. And even the difference between standing in someone's shadow and standing in the sun could be drastic. Not to mention a year on Ceres is like almost five Earth years, 4.6 Earth years. It's not ideal. But Ceres could be good for harvesting water. Ceres could contain, by some estimates, one-tenth of the total water in all the Earth's oceans, or five times more water than Earth at 200 million cubic kilometers of fresh water. So if we can get to Ceres, we might be able to mine it for that resource. In another show, Space 1999, they used asteroids as ships. Full disclosure, I did not watch The Expanse, which is currently airing, but I did watch Space 1999. I saw it on Laserdisc. My dad really liked it. Space 1999 had asteroids as ships. Basically, they would put people on an asteroid and kind of push it out into space. And one study says that astronauts could ride an asteroid to Mars. The benefit there is it's an alternative to building better shielding and better spacecraft to stop radiation from getting to the astronauts. You just tunnel into an asteroid, use the asteroid's orbit to take you there, it saves you on fuel, and then you just pass close enough to a planet to hop out, get to your destination. According to the study, an asteroid taxi would need to be about 33 feet wide, to provide enough shielding. And of course, would need to pass close enough to both planets to make it worthwhile. But real talk, to be honest, this whole series we've been talking about mining asteroids and grabbing them and going out and doing all of this incredible stuff with them, but we have no idea how to actually do all this. Planetary Resources says that they'd land a swarm of scraping robots on an asteroid with barbed, grippy feet, which could vacuum up the regolith of shoot it back to Earth. But come on! It's frickin' insane. You don't even know what an asteroid looks like up close. We just landed on a comet for the first time last year. We don't know definitively what the surface of an asteroid would be like, what it would be like to mine, and how all that would work. We don't know how to mine one. We don't know even how to capture one yet. And that's why NASA and all of these other companies are working on them. But to do that, they have to practice. They have to go out and capture some asteroids. They have to run some experiments and figure out if these things can be useful for us. Because if they can, like we've said already, they could completely change space travel for all of us. We've been looking at asteroids through telescopes since Giuseppe Piazza discovered them in 1801. But other than knowing where they are, even now, more than 200 years later, we're not 100% sure what they are all the time. 
This week, we talked a lot about asteroid mining. Hopefully, we can get up there and actually do this because it's a big deal, like the expanse or something. I don't think I'd want to be a belter myself, but you know what? To each their own. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating wherever you're listening to your podcasts. Tell your friends about how great Seeker Plus is. You know, that would be awesome. We really appreciate it. I have seen the ratings we've got so far. It really warms my heart. Thank you so much. And thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll be back next week with more crazy science. I am Trace. Thanks again. 